sure is quiet in here. I came to lunch and I saw what was going on and I heard the speaker and I was all nervous because the room was so big and so many people. And uh, so my power had a plan for me and I'm feeling very much more comfortable now. My name is Ian and I'm alcoholic. And I'm from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, I go to the university group and I have a sponsor. His name's Tom G. And um, I'm, I'm sometimes wondering how I got here. Not into AA, but to Buffalo. I was, uh, I was introduced to Mark and, and Allison uh, a few years ago. I came to, to Buffalo to do a retreat for lawyers in AA because my sponsor's a lawyer. And I was uncomfortable there because I was, I was an ex-doctor. I'm, I'm not practicing anymore. As you'll see as I get on into my talk, I, um, I, uh, I have a little bit of ADD like the woman this morning, and I was an optometrist, so sitting in a dark room all day saying what looks better, one or two, three or four, was just not my thing. So I've gone on to bigger and better things. I tell my dad all the time when he, he I said it was just a $300,000 mistake, that's all. I did it for them anyway. So. So I came here for the for this uh, retreat that we we spoke to a bunch of lawyers and I was you know my sponsor's a lawyer and that's unfortunate. Um, I had to listen a lot. He talks a lot and I listened a lot. But I learned a few things in uh, in the time that I've been listening to him and that's kind of what I was asked to come and share about. Um, he's he's uh, 50 years sober. He's 93 years old. He's still uh, active in Alcoholics Anonymous and and he spent a lot of time. Um, of clearly working with alcoholics and addicts. I, I said yesterday when I introduced myself at dinner that I was a meth addict that suffered from alcoholism. One of the biggest frustrations that I've always I felt in my, my, I've been sober since July the 7th, 2001, and my years in, 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 a, in coming in AA is that, and one thing that's been drilled into my head is that I have one problem that includes all problems. And, and uh, once I had, to under, I had to understand and identify as an alcoholic, and then once I did that, it didn't matter what my problem was. It didn't matter if it was alcohol or meth or whatever I did. Meth brought me here. I behaved like an alcoholic since I was a very young age. I had a very hard time coming to the, to the understanding of what alcoholism was. It was uh, I was that defiant kid that got into AA that would come and say, I'm an alcoholic addict just to piss off the old timers in the room um, because I was an addict too, you know. And uh, but it took a lot of work and a lot of understanding, and through my clearly through my sponsor's number of years in working really closely in the fellowship, I, I um, I've come to understand what alcoholism is, and and the most important thing that I learned is that it's nothing has nothing to do with alcohol, at all. He used to say, and I, and I, I've stolen it from him, is that if you take, you know, the big book says alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. But if you took a bottle of alcohol to the National Research Council of Canada or whatever research council in the United States and you said, can you analyze what's in this bottle, you wouldn't get a letter back saying inside this bottle is something that's cunning, baffling, and powerful. You'd, they would say there's alcohol and there's water and, there's, and they would tell us what the ingredients were. So why, what, what was the impact of alcohol in my life? And it wasn't alcohol and that's what I had to learn. That the substance had no bearing on what my problem was. Booze was not, was not my problem. So the question, I was asked a question a long time ago, and, and uh, my, this, this, this idea of conscious separation and conscious unity, which I'll get into and get into the background and the understanding of it, the question I was asked is, what do we recover? We call this recovery. And I've asked that question numerous times, and so many people can't answer what it is that we recover. So I'm going to get into my talk, and I'll ask the question again, and hopefully it'll be answered. 
A is so simple. Alcoholism is so simple. I, we complicate everything. My sponsor said, and he says over and over, and I'm, I see him on a, regularly ba a regular basis, weekly, a few times a week, and every time we get together, at some point in our conversation, he breaks into this, this monologue of, you have one problem that includes all problems. And then he says, there's one answer that includes all answers. So clearly, in my talk, conscious separation is the problem, and the answer is conscious unity. But obviously, it's really hard to get from point A to point B without some understanding. I remember uh, going to him early in recovery, and I continually went to him, and, and uh, he got it from his sponsor. But I'd go to him, and I'd say, you know, I really need to talk to you about a problem I'm having. And he'd look to me and say, you have no problems. You are the goddamn problem. Any problem. He'd say that over and over. You don't have a problem, you are the problem. And I never understood that for a very long time. And so I think it's really clear, important to understand that. I was the problem. And what does that mean? It was really difficult to understand for a long time. One really important and really important part of my recovery and early recovery and the first time and, and um, my first sponsor who happens to live in Niagara Falls is here tonight, Kevin. So I can't lie about anything. He knows early, my early recovery, thanks for coming, um, is identification. And the clue, the most important thing for a newly recovering alcoholic or addict is to identify. My sponsor at the time when I first got sober, uh, when I first met Tom, my current sponsor, I went to a meeting that he had and, and we were talking and he, would talk, he was talking about his life. And he was, he, you know, at the time he was 84, he was a specialist, he'd never tried drugs, he was a pure alcoholic. I'd come in as a unique crystal meth addict. I was very different than everybody, much better than alcoholics. Like you know, I just thought I was so much. My ego was so huge um, that I thought I was better than alcoholics. Didn't want to be one. But he started talking about his his life as a child, growing up in a family of four kids. He's an 85 year old. Very different times. You know, my dad used to take me in the car to dress for hockey. He went in horses and buggies to hockey games. Like that was, it was a real different time. But he talked about how he felt as a kid. And he talked about being, you know, uh, born into a privileged family, a great mother and father, great siblings, and never feeling a part of that family. And always feeling adopted. And never feeling in, like he was in the right place. And wherever he went, he felt what we call consciously separated. He felt disconnected from life, from everything good in life, from God, from love, from life, from family, from everything in life. So it was really interesting because here I was, you know, I, a little bit about myself. I, you know, I, I grew up in this upper middle class family. I grew up privileged. I grew up, um, I have an older brother and sister. I'm much younger. Um, I like to blame all my problems, well, my mother or my brother, depending on my mood. Um, but I, I grew up in this family and I, I, I felt this, this, this separation from them. I was about eight and, eight and ten years younger than my brother and sister, so I was much younger, so I was a little bit, a little bit isolated. But I didn't know what my problem was, but I did know one thing that for the time I was a little boy, I was searching for something. I remember as early as kindergarten. And in kindergarten, I remember watching the kids play and looking at them going, something's wrong here, I don't fit in here. Like something's up, they're playing so good together and like I just felt completely dissociated from everything in my life. 
Not to say that I didn't have a mask on my whole life. That's, that went on forever. I was a very, uh, I wasn't a kid that got in trouble when I was young. I was a good kid. My alcoholism showed itself in achievement and being part of every club, every sports team, everything in school, everything positive. And what I've come to realize later in my life, all that stuff was for the attention and the need of my ego, my obsession with self to feel good about myself. And it wasn't real, and it started feeling worse and worse as the time went on because I couldn't get that ego satisfaction. So I've come to understand, and I've come to understand clearly that my problem is that feeling of conscious separation, that somehow my spirit, and I'll speak about Carl Jung in a little bit, is cut off from the spirit, disconnected from life, completely separate from life. And until I got to AA and got to this program and got busy with these steps, with all the three legacies in AA, I didn't understand what I needed to do to get well. Through all those years of growing up, I, and uh, later in life in high school, I started understanding and, and feeling that, uh, that there was a problem. And I, I went to psychiatrists and I, I went to doctors and I, I, I was looking for an answer. I, um, I moved to, I, I, when I graduated high school, I moved to Israel and I joined the army and I thought that's where I'd find the connection. And I was searching for some kind of power or some kind of fulfillment at that point and it was never coming. So... That's the common thing, I think, that's very common amongst most of us. So I've come to believe, you know, from the help of my sponsor and, and Alcoholics Anonymous and his 50 years experience that there's only one problem, and that's conscious separation. We talk a lot in our group at, uh, um, about something called the alcoholic-obsessed ego. It's an ego that's obsessed with itself. I don't know how many times... I've in my life and continue go into a room and wonder what everybody's thinking about me. I once asked my dad recently, asked my dad recently in the last couple of years, I said, when you go to a party, do you walk into the room and start wondering if people think you're dressed okay? Do you walk into a room and wonder if people are looking at you or talking about you? And he said, no, he's a normie. He says he walks up to the first person, says hello, go gets a drink, mingles with people and does not for one second think about himself. And my whole life was all about that. I was constantly worried about how I felt, what people were thinking, and I, I was always in my head. It was that, that little voice constantly talking to me. Is everything okay here? Are you looking? Are you walking all right? Are you standing all right? Are the clothes you're wearing all right? And I was, my, my power was what everybody else thought of me. So I came to understand that with the help of, of Bill Wilson and many doctors that helped Bill over the years, in, early, in the early years, that the nature of our disease is not the alcohol, it's not the substance, it's not the gambling, it's not the sex. I always tell this story when I'm telling my story, and it's a little different today. I'm, I'm looking at notes because I usually tell my story, I speak a lot, but I don't speak on topics very often. I was a few years sober, and um, I developed a problem with strawberries. And um, an obsession with strawberries, fresh strawberries. And every night I, before I went to bed, I had to go to the grocery store and make sure I had fresh strawberries before bed every night. And this lasted for a long period of time. And you're all looking at me like I'm crazy, and I am, because I understand that the obsession, it doesn't matter how it comes around, but that obsession to make sure I had those strawberries every night was as strong as the obsession for crystal meth or alcohol or sex or anything else in my life. The obsession is in our life at all times. The obsession with self. That's the major, that's the problem that I, that I suffer from.
So what I've come to understand is that it's the obsessed ego, it's that obsession with self that blocks me from any ability to have connection to any power. It blocks me from people, places, things. It blocks me from life. It blocks me from my family. It blocks me from my career. It blocks me from everything. And somehow I had to get rid of that obsession with self. Without the power, there's no recovery. And until the ego is reduced, I'll never be powerless. Because it's that ego, that, that alcoholic obsession with the self that has blocked me from that stuff. So you have to be at a place, I've learned that you've had to be at a, you have to be at a place in recovery where you feel powerless enough to accept the, the, the principles and the understanding of what Alcoholics Anonymous is. So now I understand that it was my human ego that kept me separate from everything. Everything in life. I walked around my whole life with a huge ego and no self-esteem. I pretended I had millions of masks, I was comfortable everywhere, no one in the world would have thought I had a problem, of course till the end, but no one in the world for that matter would have thought I had a problem. I played hockey in college, I had everything going for me, the guys, I, I, I went to the international conference in Toronto and I met one of my childhood friends who had, I had explained to what had happened in my life and where I'd gone and, and I told him how I felt as a kid in all of our relationships and he couldn't get it. He thought, everybody looked up to you. Everybody wanted to be like you. And I was thinking, really? Because I didn't want to be like me. So I learned that, yeah, huge ego, no self-esteem. I walked around looking like I owned the world, chest out, you know, head up. But on the inside, I was dying. No self-esteem. So... I need to switch directions for a section, second here to, to really have a look at the problem. That we have a disease that is physical, emotional, mental and spiritual with only a spiritual answer. Hard to grasp, especially if you're a physician or a doctor. How does that work? The best example of a doctor that understood this from day one was Dr. Her Dr. Silkworth, who wrote the doctor's opinion in the book. And he said, this is beyond my synthetic knowledge. This disease is beyond that. But I know something. Whatever's happening here, these people, you can absolutely rely on what they're saying. And let them, his assessment, everybody thinks the doctor's opinion in the book, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was his opinion of alcoholism. But it was his opinion of the program of, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So to understand the problem, we have to look at some of these doctors that Bill came in contact with. Most of you probably know the, the story. You probably know the, the story about Roland Hazard, or maybe you don't. And Roland Hazard came from a rich family and, and uh, ended up going to study or uh, get treated under Carl Jung, and was treated under Carl Jung for one year for personality disorders. Got on the boat, on the way home, got drunk. Parents sent him right back to Switzerland for another year of treatment. What did Carl Jung have to do with Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, there's, there's grapevine articles that were written in 1961, correspondence between Bill and Carl Jung about the essence of our program and what Carl knew when he treated Roland Hazard and about alcoholism. Carl Jung in that article talked about how he was too fearful to talk about what he thought about alcoholism and addiction, the same thing. He said something like, 
Alcoholism or addiction is a total spiritual disease symbolic of a deep spiritual problem. And it demanded some sort of vital spiritual experience of de- depth. And he talked about union with God, like actual union with God. And Carl Jung said that the thirst of an alcoholic or the thirst of an addict or a thirst of a gambler or a thirst of a whatever you want to call us is a thirst for wholeness. And I don't know how many times I've gone to meetings over and over and over over the years where people have said something's missing in my life. I feel empty in my gut. I have had a hole in my gut. I feel disconnected, uncomfortable, consciously separated. And that is the nature of what I believe the problem is. And we have to understand that. So the the thirst of the alcoholic is a thirst for wholeness. How do we get complete? You see, somehow, and Carlin talks about this, my spirit or our spirits get disconnected from the spirit. Not disconnected necessarily from God, but disconnected from life. So our thirst is not a thirst for meth or food or gambling or shopping. My biggest problem was more in somewhere else. Wherever I was, I wanted, more, I wanted to be somewhere else. The grass was always greener on the other side. It was always better to be over there. That family was better. That place was better. Wherever I went, it had to be a different place. Until I got there, and then I wanted to be back where I started. Couldn't understand it. And the other problem was more. Well, I just explained the strawberry story. More. So we had to explain that somehow we had to have this vital, this vital spiritual experience at depth. This union with God in the medieval sense, whatever that meant. Roland Hazard fell into the OGs, the Oxford groups, and somehow had that conversion experience and got sober. And ultimately we know the story, or we should, that later he carried the message to Ebby Thatcher, who carried the message to Bill Wilson and was a great part of the beginning of our fellowship. It's interesting that it was 35 years later that Carl Jung and Bill corresponded to, with each other, and they were able to explain what had happened in both instances. Bill didn't know that. Young gave Bill, and in the, in the Grapevine articles, he said there's three possible ways that you can have that vital spiritual experience. Three things that can happen. Sudden, as we always talk about in AA, about Bill's sudden white flash. Educational, higher learning, constant development of higher learning. And the last one, he said, was honest communication with friends protected by the wall of human community. Honest communication with friends protected by the walls of human community. And if that is not one of the best definitions of AA you've ever heard in your life, I don't know. So the answers were coming to us way before we had the answer, way before the steps, way before the big book. And it was all these little pieces of, of history that developed and Bill got, that Bill came in contact with. It was June 30th, 1961, written in the grapevine. There's another doctor that's uh, written about an AA comes of age, Harry Tebow. I don't know if anybody ever reads, uh, has read that book. But in one of the appendices, there's an article written by him, and it's page 311, if anybody wants to write that down. And Harry Tebow, after working with, with also with m- many, many alcoholics, Harry Tebow is the doctor that gave Marty Mann the transcript of the big book before the big book was written. Marty Mann was the first woman in Chicago. She was the first woman that got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to read directly from page 311 because I think it's really prudent and important to understand what Harry Tebow said because it was him that really nailed me to the wall. 
He says, before attempting to explain how further understanding of the significance of the religious factor developed, it's necessary to discuss the characteristic structure which has dissolved. He says, before attempting, despite most reports to the contrary, there is a growing recognition of common qualities with regular, which, which regularly present in alcoholics, except those with frank underlying mental condition. Here we go. Characteristic of the so-called typical alcoholic, narcissistic egocentric core. Narcissistic egocentric core. All the stuff we're talking about. Dominated by feelings of omnipotence, bigger than God, greater than life. Huge, self huge ego, no self-esteem. Intent on maintaining at all costs its inner integrity. With these characteristics are found other maladjustments. They appear in relatively pure culture in pure culture in alcoholic after alcoholic. In a careful study of series, Silman, re Silman recently reported that he felt he could discern the outlines of a common characteristic structure among those problem drinkers. In the best terms he could define them with was defiant individuality and grandiosity. My whole life is written in that paragraph. My entire life from the time I was a kid is written in that paragraph. Always feelings of grandi grandiosity, terminal uniqueness, defiance. I was going to defy everything. When anybody said I did the opposite, still can sometimes. So it's really important to understand, understand what, what, what these doctors gave us prior to understanding what the answer to our problem was. Silkworth, we talked about him a little bit earlier. Hopelessness. He gave us the understanding that you had to be completely hopeless. You needed to hit that bottom before you could actually surrender. Harry Tipo also did a bunch of articles on, well, I'm thinking about on surrender versus compliance. Those people that just sit around and wonder why nothing good's happening in their life versus the ability to surrender. My sponsor always says to me, you only have to surrender twice in your life. The first day when you walked into AA and every morning after that when you wake up. Surrender, 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 and again surrender, he says all the time. Silkworth talked about something, that, he talked about the obsessions of the mind that cause us to drink. I talked about that alcoholic obsessed ego, and we often talk in our group about the children of the ego. What are the children of the ego? And all the guys I've worked with over the last nine years, and in talking to Tom and all the guys he's worked with, it's never the drink that makes you drink. It's envy, jealousy, greed, sloth, resentment, lust. Those are the children of the ego. And if we get figure out a way to get rid of this obsession, of this, this ego, ultimately we, we live free of those children of the ego. The minute I'm out of line, one of those children come back. Whenever there's fear in my life or resentment or envy or anger or jealousy or any or lust, all of a sudden I'm right into self. And when I'm thinking about me, there's no room for God. Because there's either room for Ian or there's room for God. Omnipotence, right? So, I talk, I talk often about why I used. Why, why did I use and couldn't stop? Or why did I drink and I couldn't stop? Another doctor we talk about is William James. William James wrote a book called Varieties of Religious Experience, Dr. William James. And that, Bill had that book right beside him when he was, when he was writing the big book. He said two things that are really important. He said that each of us has our own personal spiritual experience that's unique to us. 
I thought that was very interesting because I was so arrogant when I got into AA. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and I, my family took me to synagogue when I first got back to Winnipeg. They brought me back there for treatment. I'd, I'd lost everything. I'd, um, I had needles in my arms and I was involved with organized crime and prostitution and I'd, I'd really lost everything. And, and, uh, I thought that when I got sober that it was necessary that for me to have a burning bush experience for me to believe I had a spiritual experience. So I went around in my first year looking for that experience. I wondered when God was going to present himself to me. I often heard uh, my sponsor talk about, and he talked about this a lot, we talk about in We Agnostics, where the fun, it says the fundamental idea of God is deep down within every man, woman, and child, and it was very hard for me to get that God was not out there. That for me to find this power, I had to find it deep within me. That the fundamental idea of God was within, within each of us. And I started to put these pieces together and it made very clear sense to me that if I have an ego that's obsessed with itself, and if Carl Jung said my spirit's cut off from the spirit, clearly the problem's within me and not out there somewhere. I find so many people are out there looking for, many people are out there looking for God in a, like in a little wood gold box sitting on a, on a mantle somewhere. And, uh, the greatest revolutionary thing was that, you know, the, the discovery of God and the discovery of self are the same thing. And once you find that in yourself, you're able to find it. And I learned that from, from sponsorship. I got that idea through watching other people recover. I didn't see the fact that the fundamental idea or the power was within me, but I saw other people's lives changing as I sponsored them. And I really clearly saw that the power was within people. The other kind of a spiritual experience I wanted was my sponsor's spiritual experience. The problem was he was 40 years sober. I'm doing this really hard for a long time. So I used to sit there and I'd look at him and he'd say, Ian, when you're one year sober, you're just one year sober. And I'd say, yeah, so? And when you're two years sober, you're just two years sober. And when you're three, and he kept saying that stuff to me. Because I was looking for his spiritual experience. I wanted what someone at 35 and 40 and 45 years sober had when I was one or two years sober. Ego or not. The other thing that William James talked about was that the, discover, the greatest discovery is that the human being can alter his life by altering his attitude. I look at my attitude my whole life. The glass was always half empty. I had no reason to believe for one second that my life was negative or uncomfortable or bad and I always saw it half empty. Life had never dealt me the right hand. I didn't know what was wrong. I clearly believe that you're born with alcoholism. I believe that something traumatic can happen when you're a young kid or something traumatic can happen in your life which triggers that and when eventually you're feeling low enough and empty enough you pick up whatever you need to pick up and you feel fine again. Alcohol was called spiritus at one time. I wonder why. It's clear to me. So, the answer. One answer. One answer which includes all answers. The big book talks about that we have to find a power that solves all our problems. It doesn't say that we have to find quit drinking. Most people know that quitting drinking doesn't solve our problems. The strawberries, I'll go back to the strawberries. The obsession will drag me by the nose wherever it needs to take me to get what I want to satisfy my ego. And that's how by using strawberries because it's so stupid. It's like the jaywalker. Why, did we, why was the J-Rocker story written in the big book? It was for someone like me, who didn't think I was alcoholic, but I was down a J-Walker. 
I hadn't drank for seven or eight years when I got here. I was shooting meth, that's all. So, one answer. Union with God. Discover, discovery. Discovering God. Discovering self. The big book tells us where and how to find the power. It tells us complete directions at the start. Then it tells us what to do next. The word next is there. Next do this. Next do that. So, conscious separation is very real as an experience. But it's not reality. And I know sober today is whatever just for today, but as long as I've been sober, that I can be just as consciously separated today as I was the day that I got here. And that's not reality. Feeling scared to come into a room like this and talk is not reality. The reality is, is you just come and talk. In reality, the self cannot be separated from God. God, the power was always there. If it's deep within me, it had to have been. But somehow, that obsession with self, that obsessed ego, that fractured ego, separated me from everything good in life, from God and from love. So the emptiness is not a thirst for wholeness as it's perceived. Because of the, separate, because of the obsession, we only experience life separate from God. So the substance doesn't matter. I love hearing, I, I get so frustrated and I get, listen to alcoholics talk or, and, uh, I have, in a lot of the small communities where I come from, there's some AA groups that are very keen on singleness of purpose and I'm a, I'm keen on singleness of purpose, but they come to me and they say, Ian, an addict walks in our room and I don't know what to say to them. Like, and I look at them. These are guys 20, 30 years sober. And I ask them, have you read the big book? The big book says our problem is selfishness not self and self-centeredness, not cocaine. You have the same problem as them, and we're so busy in life. And I, I, I watch, you know, I, I work with a lot of people, and I watch them. They're, you know, they're all of a sudden they have, they're sober and they're clean, and they have, they're sober and they're clean, and they have sex problems, and they think they maybe should go to SLA. And I say, well, what are you going to get at SLA that you can't get in AA? And I learned that because when I was about five years sober, I started having problems with relationships in my life with people that were either sober or not. And I said to my sponsor, I need to go to Al-Anon. And he said, what's different from you than Al-Anon? And then the next month, he took me to a GA meeting, and I spoke at it. And I spoke about this stuff. I spoke about those feelings deep within me. I spoke about conscious separation. And right after that meeting, a woman came up to me and said, I understand exactly what you're talking about. I felt that way my whole life. And I realized through all these experiences that gambling wasn't her problem and alcohol or drugs wasn't mine. So we have the answer. What's the answer to this problem? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we all know what it is. It's, there's three legacies. The program, recovery, unity, and service. All three parts are the answer. The path, our path. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Makes it very simple. So I've learned my sponsor's sponsor, a guy named Chuck C. from California, used to say to him all the time, it's a divine impossibility to satisfy this human ego, that obsession with self. So how do we get rid of it? Like I said earlier, there's no room for me there's no room for God in my life if there's all me. So, conscious separation to conscious unity. 
Um, honest communication between friends protected by the walls of human community. It's the answer for all of us. That's why the 12 steps work. It brings us from a place of desperation, of powerlessness, gives us the ability to find a power and gives that ability for us to share that power with others. I think about the third step prayer. Again, nothing in it about alcohol. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. It doesn't say relieve me of alcohol. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them would bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Take away my difficulties. What are my difficulties? Everybody wonders that. What are my difficulties? My difficulties are that obsession. My difficulties are that conscious separation from life and disconnection. That blocks me from you and my family and my, and my, and my power, those difficulties. And if I'm able to get down to this program and get busy with the steps and get busy with service and understand there are three legacies and do that kind of work on a daily basis. My life has taken me in so many directions I would have never dreamed of, as of most of ours. Yeah, so I'm not a doctor, not practicing a doctor, practicing doctor anymore. Um, I, uh, I was asked to sit on the, in, in the province I'm from, on the Addictions Foundation in Manitoba. I've started a nonprofit sober living facilities for men, the first ones and women now in, in our city. Um, so my life has taken me in directions that I never thought I, I always wanted to be of service. I knew I was on searching for something. I knew I was looking for an answer. But what was that answer to be? So I can't change the reality of my own being. My, my sponsor always says, Popeye, he, 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 he quotes Popeye, I am what I am and that's what I am. And that's the truth. And the longer I'm sober, the more I know that I'm the same kid I was that when I, when I, as I was growing up. I am me, and that's, and being comfortable with me is where I needed to go. But what I can do is change my experience in reality. And that can only happen by the deflation of the obsessed ego. And that only can happen through being conscious of what the real problem is. Drinking wasn't the problem. Meth wasn't the problem. Coke. Listen, I was the kid that, you know, booze bone was connected to the pot bone and the pot bone was connected to the coke bone and the coke bone was connected to the meth bone. Meth bone was connected to the strawberry bone. I just made that up. But, but that, that's the problem. So the problem is really clearly that, you know, that obsession with self and, and, um, I know that uh, I, when we came here and spoke about this to a bunch of lawyers, they got it. So a bunch of lawyers, they got it. So I'm hoping a bunch of doctors can get it too. Um, I really appreciate being here. I want to thank Mark and Allison for conning me to come, asking me to come. It's an eye-opener to see. Uh, I've witnessed lots of conventions and I've been at lots of places and I've spoken lots of places, but I've, it's really good to see a bunch of doctors all get along in one place and, and have... And, uh, and relate to each other and have this place to come and be free and, and um, share with each other. So this has been a great experience. I hope it was for you also. I hope I uh, enlightened you. You probably all knew this already. But uh, thanks very much.